is February 24th, 2011. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Tom Cleland, who's professor of psychology at Cornell University. He works on the construction of odor representations in the olfactory bulb uh, using an experimental toolbox full of theory, computation, physiology, and behavior. Hi, Tom. Hi. Around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. Todd Troyer. Good afternoon. Carlos Palladini. Hello. And me, I'm your host, Salma Qureshi. So, um... Tom, you've worked on models of olfactory signal um, processing based on uh, first-order filtering, contrast enhancement, oscillations of spike timing, as well as higher-order associative functions, learning, et cetera. I don't really know how far we'll get with all with, with that list, but let's start with some really basic stuff. So can you talk about how the information processing challenges presented by olfaction can be analogized with other sensory systems and, and whether, whether the analogy is borne out in the functional architecture of the system and, and where maybe that analogy fails? Sure. Um, it's actually my favorite question. There's, I don't think the analogy does fail very easily as long as you're willing to um, abstract the problem away from concrete details of networks and mechanisms. I mean, the, so we'll start with some of the concrete things, sort of the contrast enhancement story, which is where primary neurons have receptive fields. They respond to ranges of stimuli. And often the second-order neurons or higher-order neurons also have similar receptive fields, but they have this inhibitory surround, where as you get sort of away from the center of the receptive field, away from the best stimulus, you actually are inhibited rather than just simply not excited. And this is associated with lateral inhibition in in audition and in vision, Um, and in olfaction, it can't be. And there's a lot of technical reasons for that. But the idea of this sort of on-center inhibitory surround persists in olfaction as well. It's just that this surround is in chemical space, and this chemical space is so high-dimensional that lateral inhibition, the algorithm that does this in other sensory systems, is insufficient to do it in olfaction. So again, the idea of this sort of decorrelation mechanisms based on inhibitory surrounds is, is universal and applicable among at least these three sensory systems, and I believe it goes more broadly, um, but the mechanisms that mediate it are different because of the nature of the modality. So, so the idea of, uh, but the actual problem itself, so the dimensionality of the problem is what, what presents these differences. But at the same time, you see a lot of the same functional architecture that looks like it would lead to things like lateral inhibition. You see convergence, you see redundancy. Um, you know, can you comment on oh, sure. some of that? Can I say something about that? Because yeah. one of my favorite books in my whole life has been this book by Gordon Shepard, The Synaptic Organization of the Brain. Yeah. I read the very first edition of that book at the most impressionable time in my life. And um, I think that probably the, the premise for writing the book in the first place, for the very first edition, was Gordon wanting to talk about the parallels between the visual system and the olfactory bulb. Yep. And that was the high point of the book. It was the coolest thing. It was what attracted everybody's attention, the idea that there might be... Um, portable motifs in the brain that you would find in various places and you'd see them over and over again and they would mean the same thing. And um, it sort of, it looks like they fit, but they don't fit really. Those two, that comparison maybe isn't as good as it originally looked. Is that true? So, yeah, I I mean, the direct comparison was between retina and olfactory bulb. And interestingly, I actually do think that, actually now sort of think of the olfactory bulb as being sort of a, analogous to an amalgam of retina and primary visual cortex, um, but but not in the same way as as, as, as Shepard meant, or at least as how his words have been interpreted. It, so the olfactory bulb 
also has this incredibly rich lateral inhibitory layer, where mitral cells, which are the primary, actually, sorry, the second-order principal neurons, inhibit each other indirectly through these inhibitory interneurons called granule cells, very much like the sort of lateral inhibitory motifs within retina. Um, that's just true. But to generalize from there to, um, to the idea that you can have these on, this on-center inhibitory surrounds mapped into physical proximity like you do in the retina, that's, you know, that's where it gets, goes wrong. Um, so the dimensionality problem in function is sort of maps to this. In, in retina, at this level, before you begin constructing all the complexities about motion and three-dimensional inference and such, you can think of it as sort of a pixel map. You get an impression on your retina, and um, lateral inhibition mediates the sort of decorrelation or edge enhancement of these images, just like the Photoshop sharpen filter, um, because the relevant map of similarity of receptive fields is low-dimensional. I mean, the, I should say it this way. Proximity, the similarity of receptor fields between two neurons is directly related to their physical proximity. In the retina, that's essentially a trivial thing. In audition, it's clearer that it's, um, it's there for a reason because frequency is mapped along the cochlea and in the cochlear nucleus. It's not trivial there like it is in the retina. Their receptive fields of neighboring neurons are... Um, are correspondingly similar by um, whatever the appropriate way is of saying by design. I mean, that's how the system works. And hence, lateral inhibition serves to inhibit those neurons that are physically close to you, of course, and therefore those neurons that have the most similar receptive fields to you. So you're inhibiting the edges of this representation in frequency space or in the retina in physical space which is where in olfaction the fundamental problem comes in is that the modality itself is high-dimensional. There are many different ways to be different from something in olfaction, whereas you know, all, all sounds can be essentially mapped as a, as a power spectrum along a single dimension of frequency. In olfaction, if you take any one chemical or any one point in, in sensory space, there are large numbers of ways to, to become different from that and they all have similar properties, and you cannot compress this high-dimensional map into a two-dimensional surface without um, running into the self-organizing map problem, which is that similarity spaces in high dimensions become patchy, discontinuous maps when you try and cram them into lower-dimensional spaces, such as you have to do, because we only have the surface of the olfactory bulb to work with. And in fact, I would dare say that that's what glomeruli are. They're the product of a high-dimensional space compressed into a low-dimensional space, creating an extremely patchy map in which proximity, physical proximity, means nothing in terms of receptive field similarity. And hence, you can't use this nearest neighbor lateral inhibition to do anything sensible computationally. So one of the, so it seems like, so you have this lateral, part of the, the question is what's lateral. <laughs> in, uh, so you have this functional lateral inhibition. If you draw some... Uh, uh, sensory space or sensory parameter, right? You can have lateral in some kind of receptive field and into nearby uh, values of the parameter. Uh, you have an optimal value of the parameter and nearby or to the size of that value of the parameter you have inhibition. Um, and if that parameter is mapped onto physical space, then that laterality becomes lateral in space in the brain. 
right? Um, but I don't use, so you make this argument that off action you can't, uh, or you, you can't map the nearby space into the nearby brain space because of the dimensionality problem. But one of the things they also talk about, we, we think of less as lateral inhibition, um, there's lateral inhibition in time um, in the sense that you, uh, you have adaptation mechanisms, for example, or lateral inhibition in time where they're sharpening representations in time. And so there's another no, uh, n- uh, notion of uh, being sensitive to change or a difference filter, and we have diff- temporal difference filters all over the place. And so I wonder if maybe some of the analogies in terms of the mechanisms uh, now you get to the olfaction, maybe they're more simple, similar to lateral inhibition in time than they are in space or I mean, you have another. You have another so analogy. Lateral inhibition in time is usually not done in a competitive way, although it can be. So what's cool about this is it doesn't require competition. It's sort of um, if what's the best prototype of something that's a lot like me? Uh, me? Yeah, I am. So why couldn't I model the things that are like me but are not quite me as just being in the penumbra around me and in space? And that's sort of what you're your mechanism does, right? It uses it, the, the glomerulus uses its own chemical sensory uh, specificity to model its pro- the proximity around it <clears throat> as a model for its own things that it ought to be competing with. And then it just competes with those. It's kind of simulating the, the surround. Well, what it means is that the brain doesn't have to know about the receptive field of the molecule. Um, which is critical because otherwise, it, you know, it's, it's you have to. Otherwise, you'd have to find. Otherwise, you'd have to know a priori every dimension that's involved yep. in your dimensional space. And when you got a mutation, you have to reconstruct and, yeah. and be able to reconstruct which ones are the nearest neighbors in every single dimension that exists. And um, but it does have that, one that important be. data point, and that is its own receptive. It's, its own receptive field. So that, if the other receptive fields are sort of like that, only displaced, you can you could more or less. Guess what they are in any dimension you want. Yeah, I'm surprised that we, that the brain ever uses competition. After thinking about this mechanism, <laughs> why ever use competition for uh, making a surround inhibition? I wonder. I mean, so I mean, the, the analogy in the retina would be, if we just think about it in the spatial and not chromatic terms, that you start becoming a bad stimulus or a lesser stimulus for any particular point when you start being deflected laterally. Um, but that's, you know, again, just as comes up a lot in this, is that you sort of define the edge to the receptive field as being ligands of less potency, inferior quality, or, you know, lower strength inputs. But that's hard to... Um, concentration changes also do that. So you have to have a some reference frame where you say, I can interpret this change as being a change in quality and not a change in concentration. And that, I think, and there are, are ways we think the bull does this, but I have trouble, maybe it's my lack of retina knowledge, seeing the retina being able to do that as cleanly with what circuitry I know. How could you tell that I'm less active because a good stimulus is a little off-center versus I'm less active because... You know, it's it's a darker or, or less competition stimulus. Automatically does this normalization. It does sort of both jobs at one time. Yeah. The 
Whereas in the olfactory bulb, because there isn't a competitive mechanism for this round, there has to be another normalization mechanism. Uh, that's, yeah, that's exactly right. There's um, essentially there's yeah there. It, so we're quite confident. There's a lot of data out now supporting the you know, the models we built several years ago about these you know, within column contrast enhancement and the you know, using bring your own inhibitory surround where every glomerulus computes its own inhibitory surround with respect to whatever the receptive field of the molecule of the sorry of the receptor feeding agent happens to be. Um, the second layer is how you how you take concentration differences out of the equation. How you or I should say, minimize their impact because, of course, they're, you don't erase it. Um, and that's where we start beginning, you know, that's where we start including these sort of exciting lateral excitatory network as in the deep glomerular layer of bulb. Um, it, so it begins with, with ex external tufted cells. They receive um, direct afferent input from the olfactory sensory neurons, just like the, the mitral cells and other interneurons, and some other interneurons do. But they end up communicating via excitation with this network of superficial short axon cells that project laterally across the, well, underneath the surface of the olfactory bulb in this sort of moderately dense lateral network um, that end up exciting periglomerular cells which are inhibitory interneurons that in turn inhibit mitral cells. The, what we would like to see in this is if it were a very, very dense lateral excitatory network, then what, what can happen is no matter how heterogeneous your input levels, no matter the differences in the odorants, which receptors are very active and which are silent, this lateral excitatory network will end up ricocheting this level of excitation around so as to create a roughly uniform level of activity with respect to the, to the space in the bowl. So say a little bit about why lateral excitation is better for making inhibition than lateral inhibition is. I mean, why is it better oh. that this is a mutually excitatory network? Um, of an, uh, so it's creating the inhibition. Because most people don't think of it that way. We think of a lateral inhibitory network, long range. Well, so it does end up being inhibitory because the lateral excitation spreads and then goes via inhibitory interneurons to affect mitral cells. So why but the, is but inhibition the, from the, in the first place? So it would be, um, you know, so I guess the equivalent would have to be everybody inhibits everybody. Um, so I think the easiest easiest answer to that is sort of a how the brain should work answer, which is the, the, the danger to us all, right? But um, but one gain you get is that you can get, in principle, you can get uniform activity with a less dense lateral network. Um, in other words, if you I'm just trying to think of my feet here. If you have a, a fully inhibitory network where everybody inhibits everybody, first of all, you have a problem. I think it would end up conflating with the the conscious enhancement mechanism itself. But it, whether or not that's true, if you don't have all-to-all -all network activities, you will have holes in your ability to. Um, yeah, it, it won't work for some odors. The, you know, the sparser it is, the more combinations you can get that won't work right. The, the great thing about lateral excitatory networks is they'll essentially, if they're, if they're dense enough, which does not mean fully interconnected dense, they will um, 
they'll fill in. They'll sort of they'll, they'll, you know, excitation will spread, and they will all become comparably active. So that even if you don't have a an all-to-all connectivity network, you can um, take a mean, roughly speaking, of, of activity levels and have it spread across the bulb and be delivered locally. So, so I think that I think that that's the answer. I mean, if you want to average, right? And you don't want to average in a single cell. So one way to average in a single cell, if you had global inhibition, each cell would receive inhibition from everybody. So the inhibition would be the average of everybody by kind of definition, mm-hmm. right? But if you want to average, you could propagate. One way to compute an average is to propagate your signal to everybody, even if it's not a direct propagation. With excitation, an excitatory cell can excite its neighbor that can pass on that ex- excitation to all the, the projection cells can project on, and then all that can spread around. If it was a mutual inhibitory network, your inhibition is spread to some other neighbor, then it will get converted into an inhibition of the inhibition, and it would get flipped, and it wouldn't—you wouldn't be summing up the total activity that way. It doesn't work with mutually inhibitory networks; they don't—they don't average. There'd be a lot of disinhibition in there. Yeah, it'd be disinhibition. So you, could, you, you do twice; you get two synapses, and you flip sign. Right, and so you you couldn't use a, a smaller subset of your synapses to co- to compute a global average. That is one of the things we ended up finding. I should say that it was you know Jason Ounsted, Al from Michael Shipley's lab that did the finding, and we who who built the model based on that. But that these um these lateral excitatory networks are not all to all. Rather, they have distinct features of a small world network, such that when you do the the math based on certain assumptions, they're they're just dense enough that the path lengths on average are short enough that you can get a functionally all-to-all network, even though the anatomy is very far from that. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that's a lot cheaper in terms of metabolic resources, volume, heat generation. The so there's one, one analogy there we're talking about in, the, in the, um, the neocortex. You also have these patchy, long-range excitatory uh, connections, and people talk about them as column-to-column, long-range inhibition. Has anybody done... Uh, I mean, it seems it would be interesting to look at the same kind of calculation of what you need for these patchy uh, connections to be enough to create a global uh, or a broad-based uh, excitatory normalizing signal in neocortex. You see what I'm saying? That the analogy to neocortex to the long range yeah, like, connection. This is a, a, such a cooler way to do normalization. Why is there ever any other mechanism <laughs> used? Because we don't know the brain is the coolest thing. And maybe the places where we assume excitation is done with long range inhibition, may, there may actually be lots of other instances where long range excitation is being used for this normalization. The cerebral cortex, which has the definitely has the substrate required, but uh, I don't know if this idea has had a lot of penetrance. Uh, it's a kind of a new idea. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I, I hope it's of use. I mean, now it'll penetrate. It's on the podcast. <laughs> now, now it's on yeah. your side. So yeah, everybody. Now, now the world will know. <laughs> so, so I mean, I have to confess that you know. Sometimes I, I, I get lost in thought when I hear about these applications elsewhere. I mean, I, I know that some of these patterns have turned up in, in somatosensory cortex and in mouth nerve cells of all places. Um, but but I, I think of things so... I, I build these so much based on, you know, what we see in olfactory bulb and very much with respect to this modality that um, I'm always going out to other sensory systems sort of trolling for ways that people think about 
how to process particularly difficult problems, what are motifs that work elsewhere in the nervous system. But I, I think I a little I don't do as much of the reverse about, you know, taking these mechanisms that we think work here and, and looking out in the world to see where they might apply. I, this, um, the long-range connectivity and neocortex in a functional sense is not something I've thought about, so I'm interested to hear more. So what about coordinated oscillations in olfactory bulbs? So where do they come from, oh. first of all? The second favorite how, question. <laughs> and how might they modulate spike timing of, of principal cell output here, mitral cell output? There is another principal cell, though, by the way, right? Coming, cut, the, the, yeah, along I mean, with the mitral cells? There's, yeah, there's, um, and depending how you divide it, there might be two more. So the there are, there are mitral cells, and then there are middle and deep tufted cells, which um, have some distinctions, but you know where you draw your lines is is is, is anybody's guess. They have um, different projection patterns or different proportions of projection to different regions of the brain. Um, they are more sensitive to concentration differences. They don't normalize as much as mitral cells do. Mitral cells retain roughly the same level of average activ- activity across you know broadly ranging levels of input. Tufted cells less so. They seem to be um, more concentration dependent, and maybe you know, maybe they're taking most of the concentration information centrally. That's it's hard to say. They've been much less studied. Sometimes they're lumped together, the mitral tufted cells, um, but that usually means mitral cells. Okay. Oscillations. Yeah. Oscillations. So, what, it, what it, the phrase I end up using is that uh, for what the bulb does. I mean, a lot of it I consider it to be. Um, working to sort of shape odor space, to like, build representations of odors based on physics that then could get treated as, um, you know, in a sort of more early percept sense later on so that deeper areas of the brain don't have to worry about physics. If you want to anthropomorphize it that way. But the other thing it does is sort of, sort of really a metric change. And I sort of refer to it jokingly as it, it translates external world and, and into cortical. The, learns how to speak cortical. And this sort of translates to relatively sparse levels of activity um, that are regulated in time. And as far as exactly how regulated in time, those are, those are open questions. What we do know is that, um, that activation of the olfactory rule, such as by an inhalation, sets off these gamma band oscillations. And that's in vivo, it's in the 40 to 70 or 80 hertz range. Um, in slices, a little bit lower, but but still functionally the same. Endogenous to olfactory bulb, meaning that the cells within the bulb carry the mechanisms. And and they affect spike timing, although in ways that I have opinions about, but but are really still on the table. This is as active far as how sniffing. This is active sniffing behavior, not, well, not respiration. It's... Um, Active sniffing, if you really get if you really get into serious active sniffing, that's the next layer up where gamma oscillations sort of transform into slightly lower frequency beta oscillations, um, which uh, reflect a phase locking with piriform cortex, which is the sort of the largest next layer up from bulb. And there's there's a big feedback loop with piriform cortex, which you know is a really really exciting topic right now, but not something I have a great deal wise to say about it, except that active behavioral investigation puts you into, you know, is associated with beta. 
and with all kinds of opinions about what that means for learned representations, rec you know, hypothesis testing, if you want to think about it that way, how you actually interpret the afferent signals coming in based on things you already know. Um, so I personally think of gamma oscillations as, um, oh, I don't want to say this, There's, there are a lot of, a lot of oscillatory mechanisms in bulb on, on different time scales. There's respiration, of course, which is the source of theta band in bulb. There are intrinsic oscillations in mitral cells, meaning that they by themselves are, are mixed-mode oscillators and will um, have subthreshold oscillations, and, and if you, they will reset if you give them inhibitory inputs, including shunting inputs, and gentle excitatory inputs, such as they get from the nose, will then do, um, evoke spikes that are partially phase-locked to these beta-band subthreshold oscillations. I think that actually serves to put the system into gamma very efficiently and quickly. Because you only have one sniff to do this. You've got you know, a few cycles of gamma during that sniff. And if you spend your time wandering around the landscape waiting to fall into the attractor, that's not going to serve anybody. So that's an opinion right now. The models work, but, but experiments remain to be done on that. So can you say something point. about, I mean, whether it's, well, it's the right time to stop you about the relationship oh, yeah. between... <laughs> Beta and gamma. Like, so why would you want beta gam, gamma, uh, beta band subthreshold oscillations to uh, put you in the mo in the mood for gamma band oscillations? <laughs> in the mood. Well, it's, I mean, I don't know if you want them so much as they're there, right? And we know that inhibitory resets, such as SNF gives you via perigamerial cells, reset. Okay, so here's what it does. So you have these multiple columns, and in the glomerular layer of olfactory bulb, they don't really talk to each other. They're relatively isolated until you start looking at the, you know, that normalizing short axon cell network. Um, and so if, if your problem is how to get all of these cells that are busy doing their own thing to sort of line up and start behaving in a temporarily coherent way of some kind, um, in, a, in this kind of dynamical system, the best way to do it is to reset everybody at the same time. When you inhale, everybody gets reset on a theta band timescale at the same time because of the paraglomerular band shunt inhibition to mitral cells. So now, when just when the afferent information is coming in, all the mitral cells have been reset. So their intrinsic subthreshold oscillations, even if they're a little bit off from each other in favorite frequency, for the present, they're synchronized. And that means that levels of inhibition, or sorry, levels of excitation <coughs> then coming in, um, if you follow kind of like the Pascal Freeze way of thinking, it turns into a, a precedence code with respect to those who are more active will create phase, will evoke spikes that are phase leading with respect to each other. And then once this reaches the deep layers of the bulb where the um, mitral and granule cells interact, this is where the, I don't necessarily think the clock, but the energy of the oscillations is. is. Then you start your gamma cycle. And you've already got things, you know, steered right into that, gamma attractor because everybody is quasi-synchronized um, at different levels of activity that might reflect a direct precedence code or might be something more complex. Um, and then you get this endogenous gamma. So that's how I think it works. It certainly works in the models. And again, there's some details that are clearly true and some that remain untested. 
So what's left over for the gamma to do? You just talked know. about it. <laughs> I mean, if they have all the beta operation uh, oscillations and they set up a precedence code and a lot of things that people talked about, the importance of oscillation, you just talked about them as all being set up as triggered by the sniff cycle and uh, synchronized with the uh, intrinsic beta uh, oscillations uh, or the, the intrinsic beta sensitivity. So what's the gamma do then later? I mean, this is how you sort of mean it. What it, what it ends up meaning is that the action potentials evoked from activated cells will be constrained in time. I mean, this is what you classically get. It's not true of all mitral cells. Okay? There are certainly some that appear to be phase-constrained with respect to gamma oscillations, that you have multiple spikes in a row that are phase-constrained with respect to each other, meaning that there are windows of time with lots of spikes in different cells and then windows of time without many spikes at all. Some mitral cells seem to just ignore that whole system. I suspect that they're the ones that weren't activated at all to start with, never got reset along with everybody else, that are basically just participating in the normal sort of um, background levels of activity. And which is interesting because if you do have spike timing dependent receiver neurons using you know, any form of spike timing dependent plasticity or some analogous rules, they're they're really good at ignoring spikes that just happen randomly. So it's um, in essence the problem about background spiking isn't a problem if you have that kind of listener. But as far as the spikes that you know are are active and gamma phased, maybe this this precedence code is relevant. Maybe it's something more complex. But you, what you do have is now the sort of chunked in time groups of spikes, which um, which are the raw material for a lot of the interesting timing dependent plasticity rules that we know about now. So can we talk about learning, learning. in the in, in the deeper layers yeah. and some of the studies that you're doing on that? Potential <laughs> studies. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so again, what I, what I think this this is now we're talking about a whole second layer, a deeper layer in the olfactory bulb, where the same mitral cells that just got their activity levels processed and affected by interneurons in the glomerular layer and deep glomerular layer are now having their are also being influenced in some way by interactions with each other in the deeper external plexiform layer. And what that is, is that mitral cells um, from the glomerulus where they get their afferent input, you have a primary dendrite that goes up towards the soma, and then there's a number of lateral dendrites that project out laterally and form this external plexiform layer. So it's full of mitral cell lateral dendrites, and they support action potentials, which propagate um, essentially losslessly laterally to all corners of the bulb and excite another class of inhibitory interneuron called granule cells, which then inhibit both that same mitral cell via what we call recurrent inhibition, and also because that, that granule cell links up with other mitral cells as well, can evoke lateral inhibition um, which, you know, in, of other mitral cells indirectly. And then somehow this affects mitral cell activity um, further as the axon of the mitrosol projects out of the bulb into other regions of cortex. Now, this is the same lateral inhibitory network that originally got thought of as being retina-like, where you can you know, inhibit each other. Um, 
biophysically, it's in a really terrible location to do that. I mean, that's, you know, it's now pretty clear that the glomerular layer is where you get that actual prevention of mitral cell spiking that you see prominently in, in, in certain recordings. Um, it, this, um, but spikes can be initiated in the glomerular layer of the primary dendrite. It's, um, it's really hard to imagine synapses out on the lateral dendrites being able to sink a spike in progress. Um, in fact, they probably don't. What you do get is a, is a chance for the shunt inhibition, that sort of that conductance to ground you get by opening up a shunt inhibitory channel on the lateral dendrite in gamma time, because, of course, this is where the gamma oscillations are. They are these rhythmic, they end up being these rhythmic inhibitory inputs on the mitral cells that shape the spike timing. Long and the short of it is I think that the action in EPL that microcells have on each other is affected solely through the shaping of spikes in time and not in their suppression. So inhibition, lateral inhibition in this layer, I think, is, is mediated by delay of spikes so or some other spike change in time. moving down the microcell apical dendrite slows down and speeds up depending on what's happening in those... Well, sure. You always have to propagate. When you're ever propagating down a... a especially down a... Um, a non-myelinated, it's on axon in this case, but it's, it's a spike-supporting dendrite. Um, you have to depolarize the, you know, your spike at point X into depolarizing things as you project down the dendrite to a lesser and lesser degree because of, of, of decay, just cable theory. And if you have a higher conductance to ground down there, then you, you can't, your charge, um, your voltage increase can't reach as far. You have a, a, a shorter space constant. And what this ends up meaning is that the whole spike just slows its progress down the non-myelinated spike-supporting dendrite. And when it's released from that is, of course, when the inhibition goes away or begins to decay. And again, in models, um, it's pretty straightforward. The stronger the input is, the faster it's able to push its way past the slowly declining shut inhibition. And so you will end up in the Pascal freeze sense with a a precedence code, where if you're more activated to start with, you end up with your spiking slightly before your, slightly, your somewhat less activated counterpart. And so activity translates into precedence. Highest activity spikes slightly first. And of course, if you feed that into spike timing-dependent plasticity, you recapitulate the entire um, relationship that you would get if you had just looked at raw activity levels to begin with. Because they're very, you know, obviously very sensitive to, to order. And interestingly enough, now oh, that's, that's a little complicated to tell in the air, but um, but you can actually do the same sort of lateral, not lateral, contrast enhancement computations in spike timing space using the SDDP rule. Um, but anyway, so the point is, I think this deeper layer is all about spike timing in terms of mechanism, but in terms of function. We're on something new now, which I think I'm extremely excited about. The gist of it is that with a few assumptions, which I since found out many are true, um, you can make this network learn about higher order odors. What I mean by that is... um, One of the reasons I think it got mistaken, in my opinion, mistaken for the the lateral inhibition doing contrast enhancement in the first place is that lateral inhibitory networks 
do decorrelate things. That's what that's what they do. The idea is you know, they couldn't decorrelate what we wanted them to decorrelate. Hence the problem I talked about earlier on um, in this podcast. But oh, here I'll just, I'll just give the details much easier than trying to say random things. So if you have a granule cell, and it um, and granule cells do spike. Um, they do have sodium spikes, but but probably more relevant to this are T-current-based low-threshold calcium spikes. And you can, you can see some work by Veronica Aguirre and, and others um, show that if you look at the spines, when they're excited, the granule cell spines excited by mitral cells will sort of go into these calcium plateaus. You get big calcium signals that don't leave the spine. They're very isolated spines, more like granules, really. Until some sort of threshold is reached, after which the whole dendrite will explode in calcium, and all of the other dendrite, all the other spines will also be active. And the idea with this is, is that while recurrent inhibition that supports these gamma oscillations is um, is graded, you don't need the granule cells to spike. Lateral inhibition requires them to spike, and they're thresholded in some way through you know yet undetermined. Um, integration mechanisms, presumably among multiple inputs from different mitral cells. And so if you have a relatively sparse number, sparse number, a, um, a small sample of mitral cells that are feeding into any one granule cell, and that's likely simply because of the topology of the space, right? You know, not every <laughs> mitral cell can fit to talk to a single granule cell. Um, and if you need a certain number of mitral cells to be co-active in order to make the mitral cell spike, or the granule cell spike, and if the granule cell spiking is required for lateral inhibition, you've constructed a system in which granule cells have receptive fields for particular combinations of columnar activation. In other words, instead of being sensitive to glomerulus X being active, you're responsive to the combination of A, F, G, Q, and M being active at the same time. And these sort of combinations of receptor activations are the signatures of, of any actual real-life odorant. And so what this means is that the inhibition delivered by a given granule cell onto its mitral cell of interest is depends on combinatorial activation of particular patterns of other glomeruli. So in other words, it doesn't it's not listening for M, it's not listening for P, it's not listening for Q, but only when they are together does it deliver its inhibition. And that, in turn, makes the mitral cell receptive fields at this sort of second-order layer also dependent upon combinations. Sort of an interesting kind of combination because it deletes a mitral cell from the output stream as a way of signaling that that mm -hmm. combination occurred. Which is what you want to do when you're building a decorrelating network, right? I want to be taken out when, I know, if I've learned about oranges and I want to shut out you know, other mitral cells on, on the periphery, but that doesn't apply to every odor I've learned that includes many of the components of orange. It reduces all this overlap where you, you know, because most real odorants, you know, they activate 20%, 40% of the bulb, you know, depending on concentration and such, and you don't get much orthogonalization that way. You can't really sparsen odor representations. They're, they're too bogged up with each other unless you get a you know, a system like this is very effective at doing that. So does place mean something? On the app? If we looked at the output layer of the olfactory valve, then would we now see a spatial code for oranges? 
because now we have this lateral inhibition it's working be in a two-dimensional yeah. surface to make something. Um, in the sense of replicable, sure. I mean, if you think about a, a channel code, sure. If you're actually thinking about space in terms of proximity, no. Because the granule cells are connected to mitral cells over very long distances. Mitral cells, yeah, mitral cells connect to granule cells over, over long distances. Long. I am of the opinion of, for just basic biophysical reasons, that granule cells are only capable of inhibiting mitral cells that they're physically close to. And this is, you know, for no more complicated reason than simple biophysics. If you're far away, then you, you open shut inhibition on a um, lateral dendrite that's, you know, 200 microns down this thin lateral dendrite, the actual conductance change experienced at the soma is really small. So you just don't have much of an effect. In fact, we have some some work going on now with a, a collaborator, Andreas Schiefer in Germany, showing more or less exactly that, that the effect in preliminary data, but it's pretty clear that the effect is of, of granule cells on mitral cells is local. And in fact, when I said delete, that's wrong. It just slowed down its the occurrence of its action yeah, potential. Yeah. Action potential is still it, gonna happen. it might be functionally deleted. You know, that's that's an open question. <laughs> because it becomes out of phase with the oscillation of, for the network or something like that. Yeah, I mean, if it's too late and you're in a suspect having dependent plasticity rule, then you just get turned off. You know, you, you, if you, in the classic rule, if you are so late as to come after the postsynaptic spike, then you're just deleted from the ensemble and nobody cares about what you say anymore. So, But I don't, you know, we don't, that's a little. I'm just giving an example there. It's not like we know that piriform cortex does STDP, but it's a, it's an example of a timing rule that cares about such things. You know, delay can mean exclusion. And the other nice thing that perhaps this does is after the um, averaging out through the moderately dense excitatory connections, which would reduce the ability to discriminate between different odorants. You're now adding this ability at this at the next layer of. Is this? Do you think that's true? I think if so, when you had when you had the, the these excitatory lateral connections, right. which mm -hmm. basically normalize or average out the activity of the glomeruli, mm -hmm. and that would seem to me that that would um, reduce the ability to discriminate between different types of odorants. Well, I see what you're saying. See what I'm saying? Because now you just sort of average them out, and um, you're adding this combinatorial um, ability above that, so that now you can sort of mm -hmm. parse out what is actually a one order to another order. Let's see. So I think about, you know, in some ways, it's a little bit like, I guess, like an AC amplifier um, without the implications of time. It's um, the way I think about that normalizing, that lateral excitatory normalizing circuit. It's not that it reduces the, I guess, um, contrast between the, highly activated and low activated inputs, but rather it sort of shifts the whole range of activated neurons back into the middle of the um, of the of the activity range that can that can influence downstream circuitry. So in other words, if you know if if you you know if you use a DC amplifier for an extracellular recording, you can often you know, you're getting perfectly good signals, but they're all above the five volt range of your recording device. And you put in that filter, and then the whole you know unchanged except for that you know little bit sucked off the low end um, comes back into register, and it stays in that plus to minus five volt range that you can record. 
that's what I think the um, we should think about that. Mm-hmm. Think about that system. It's not not really an averaging. Then. It's not, re- it's not it's reducing concentration. Yeah, it's yeah. subtracting the average. It's, yeah. it's taking a, a, a yeah, taking a spatial average and subtracting it off yeah. so that you get a relational representation. Okay. So that those that are more active are still more active. Those that are less active are still less active. But the absolute level of activity is all brought down to where they're in the in the interesting region. I mean, otherwise, if you didn't have that, you could simply increase the excitation level globally and have everybody become active, and and the whole circuit you know, right. is out of register. It's basically the same problem. It's just yeah. one's averaging, and you can't see anything. One's going out of range. You're clipping the amplifier, basically. Right. And you yeah. also start to see anything. Right. Yeah. So it yeah, just keeps it within that. It's an anti-clipping mechanism. Yeah. yeah. Anti-clipping yeah. Mechanism. I want to go back to Charlie's to Charlie's point, though. So if you have if you have these things uh, that are sensitive to com- uh, combinations, right? These combinations of uh, glomerular activations to make up an odor, and the effect is to inhibit or knock out uh, some of the outputs from being learned or whatever you think mm-hmm. that's happening. To make this functionally relevant, then you have to project onto everything that you want to inhibit. And you'd want to inhibit like nearby odors, which would mean you'd have to project onto the combination of things that aren't the odor that you're sensitive to, um, which is a specific combination of glomeruli, right? Uh, or you could just inhibit everything else that's not the combination of glomeruli that, you, that actually excite you. Um, so you have you have both ways that you have to if you're going to uh, now deal with odors that are combinations of things and then you want to inhibit and have a, a, a functional connectivity between higher level structures, then at all excitatory inhibitory levels that you have to pay attention to that right. So so one of the things that makes I, I sorry I didn't make this clear is that at this in, at the glomerular layer level that we talked about earlier where you're talking about changing your receptor field, sharpening or broadening. Um, and now we're talking about the EPL. One of the things you get with this sort of two-layer architecture is that the, the functional synaptic weights of interactions in the EPL don't have to have anything whatsoever to do with receptor field similarity. That can be done and gone with. In fact, if you look at the circuitry, at least if you think the way I do, there's no way that level of circuitry has any information about receptive field similarity. There's nothing, there's no information there that could possibly help perform that computation, which is, you know, that's been, that's been done. It's in the glomerular layer, and there's no way the next layer seems to have any ability to compute with it. So now you're solely based on what more you want to do. And so I begin to think of this as a very much a learning layer, and in fact we know it's a learning layer. I mean, it's, I mean, we've known it's full of NMDA receptors for the longest time, although they, they are, are not an easy nut to crack. They don't seem to follow you know, easy rules. You can't get LTP out of them in the classical sense. But what we do know is how much um, memory consolidation within olfactory bulb is based upon the history of odor learning and is mediated by the differentiation of, of new neurons. Just like in dentate gyrus, there's a constant stream of new stem cells coming into olfactory bulb many of them differentiate to form mostly new granule cells, also new periglomerular cells. And the densities that they of greater differentiation depend upon the odors that are learned. And if you block this, as Natalie Mandaron and her students and colleagues in, in, in Lyon have shown, if you block this, um, 
you forget. You know, it's just it's a standard consolidation blocking experiment. If you prevent differentiation of these neurons, or if you block protein consolidation in the protein synthesis in the critical window, you don't retain the bulb-dependent learning that you that you had learned the day before. And so, although we don't know a lot about the short-term mechanisms of learning, we do know that it's there, um, in part because that which is learned gets consolidated by a mechanism that we do know more about. Obviously, there's a lot of work going into figuring out the short-term mechanisms. But the point is that you can learn in this layer things, any sort of new associations, and you know, here's where it's thrown wide open, irrespective of the physical similarities that are already taken care of, now is the time when you start remapping this space with respect to what I end up thinking of as, as where you can begin to adapt to natural scenes. Now is the time where you start saying, okay, this is a categorical process. We want to make things that are physically similar but very different in meaning and pull them apart perceptually. We want to take things that are broad ranges of variance but mean all the same thing and put them back together. It's, a, it's the olfactory equivalent of 1 over F statistics in the visual system. Um, it's, you, know, the, you begin to build a network that's attuned to the actual world you live in. Because now you've gotten you've, you've gotten the basics out of the way, you can begin to make large order constructions again to adapt to your world. And there's a number of ways one could do this. The way I'm fondest of right now is this this you know the beginning of these of this sensitivity to particular combinations, um, which can give you arbitrarily stronger levels of capacity to discriminate among very similar things. And also, in principle, can leave larger swaths of, of perceptual, of, of, I should say, receptive field space perceptually undistinguished. Well, thank you, Tom Quellen, for joining us. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. <laughs>